Hello, this is Rob Carmichael, and welcome to another Mainly Matters podcast. Today, I have as my guest, I'm very excited to have Sue Lassard, the town manager for Bucksport, and clearly one of the most experienced town managers in the state of Maine, as I'm sure you'll uh, come to understand as we go through the podcast today. Welcome, Sue. Thank you, Rob. It's nice to be here. Well, it's a pleasure to have you. I you know, full disclosure to everybody uh, that that will be listening to this, I was on the town council. I've worked closely with Sue over the years that uh, she's been with Bucksport, and uh, so I come at this with uh, a real fondness for for Sue and her role as a town manager and as a person. And I'm just happy to have her as a guest today. So, uh, with that, Sue, I'm going to just start. I know uh, I've got your bio. We've you've had uh, a long long, long uh, time in, in government and in local government uh, within the state of Maine, 41 years of experience with with uh, various aspects of uh, public service in the state of Maine, mostly in the uh, town manager role, but we'll go through that a little bit. Uh, tell us a little bit about your background before we, we get into uh, all the experience you've, you've had. Uh, can you talk a little bit about uh, your, your, uh, where you grew up and uh, your education? I'd be happy to. Um, I'm a native Mena, as they say. I was born and raised in Belfast and uh, spent the majority of my high school years there. Um, moved to Vermont as a senior when my mother remarried. Um, graduated from high school there. Went to two years of college there. Got married there got divorced here, <laughs> moved back to Maine. Um, that was kind of a, an encapsulated version. But um, all of my years of public management experience have been in the state of Maine, um, which I'm very proud of. Uh, Maine's a great state. I'm, I'm thrilled to have had the opportunities that I've had um, in this. But my introduction to local government, my first job was as the town clerk slash bookkeeper for the town of Searsport, which was a combination of they took two part-time jobs with very long-term employees and turned them into one. And I got bitten by the public service bug and I've never been cured. Uh, I still have the same passion and love for it that I did when I started. And you, it, as you as you indicated, you started uh, around 1981 with with the town of Searsport. Uh, you you had a stint at uh, Livermore Falls. Uh, you were a research associate for Maine Tomorrow. What was uh, what, what's Maine Tomorrow? What was that organization? Maine Tomorrow was a consulting organization that did comprehensive and land use planning in communities, um, and it did had contracts with the state for the Self-Insurance Guarantee Association. And I worked on contracts for the firm, many of which were local plant, community planning efforts um, in communities that contracted with Maine Tomorrow for assistance with doing comp- comprehensive plans or redevelopment kinds of plans. And then um, the I also worked as staff to the Self-Insurance Guarantee Association, which was maintaining claims database for the self-insured 
workers' compensation employers in the state. It looks like, uh, in listening to that, that sounds like in the midst of all your different roles and as a town manager, that seems to be uh, a great uh, preparation, some great preparation for for those roles. It it, it really was, and and truthfully, um, my first I was in Searsport for nearly six years, and if you're the town clerk, everybody loves you, and you could have I could have stayed there forever. Except, I wanted, I wanted to try the next step, the next level. I had done everything in Searsport I could do except depose the manager, and he was a good manager. I wasn't trying to depose him, but I needed my own community to try, and that was Livermore Falls. It was my first, and it it was a, a a really good community, but it was on the cusp of a crisis in which. The international paper company um, workers went on strike. That was a very long, and I say not disrespectfully, that it was somewhat like trying to manage Bosnia. I don't mean to offend anyone, but it was it was a hard first community as as a manager when there were as many issues as there were there. And after the the strike was settled, and I was offered a job at Maine Tomorrow. I left thinking that I just wasn't cut out for the level of anger and anxiety and all sorts of things that went along with that. You're thrown into the fire there, it sounds like, uh, during that period. And just too stubborn to leave because if I had, all I could think of was if it's if it's this difficult and I'm here, what happens to this community if they don't have a me and who's going to want to come here under these circumstances? It was very difficult um, for the community, for the people who lived in the community who felt passionately on all sides about the issue. It was, it was a really exceptional learning experience in human behavior. And we'll talk about when we get to uh, get to the point where you you came to Bucksport and all the challenges there. I'm sure some of that uh, some of that presented itself in in maybe a different sort of uh, way, but uh, still some of the some of the struggles that you experienced then I'm sure came back you know, from uh, and, and you use that experience as you came into town here. We'll get there in a in a minute, but I want to kind of continue on you. You went to the town of Fayette, but what really interests me, your next uh, stop after after Fayette was the Vinyl Haven. You were the town manager of Vinyl Haven. Tell us about that. Well, well but I, I'm, just a little segue to that. I was at Maine Tomorrow and was contacted by the town of Fayette, which had had sort of a governmental overthrow. I mean, the selectmen were all new and the employees had quit and they... They needed someone to come in and kind of put the wheels back on the bus. And I had been out of municipal government working for Maine Tomorrow, which was a wonderful firm, but but it wasn't quite close enough to the people to mm-hmm. make me feel like I was. So I, I left Maine Tomorrow and went to work for Fayette. And for the few years that it took to sort of get things re- going again and the office computerized and uh, withdrawn from school district. We did a lot in a couple of years, but Vinyl Haven was, um, 
my sons were, one was off to college, one was about to go, and I thought the timing would be terrible because we lived in western Maine and they weren't quite out of the house yet, but I I applied anyway, and then I didn't think I would get the job because I had to cancel my interview because I had fired an employee in Fayette, and that was the day they had the interview was the day I had to have the hearing for the. Uh person and so I had to call and say no and then a few weeks later the people from Vinyl Haven called and asked me to come over and so literally you know you get on a ferry and you're going to spend the night because there's not enough time so I get on a ferry I go over I walk off the ferry I check myself into the only motel in town because there's a note on the door that says check yourself in here's your which I did and then went to find something for dinner and and there was nothing open for dinner. I, I ended up at a, it, the shop isn't there anymore. It was called Bungie's Video. And it, I, I bought popcorn and then went to the Board of Selectmen's meeting that was supposed to happen before the interview and got really engaged in the discussion, but then had an interview in which I think it's fair to say that a significant percentage of the board didn't believe that a woman would be tough enough to manage an island where the where lobstering is the primary um, occupation and the challenges that come with being 12 miles offshore. Yeah, the culture but, has to be quite a bit different than any of the previous. It, well, it, it's an interesting, interesting place because it has it has very hardworking lobstermen and and a whole contingent of uh, an artist colony and it has a very significant um, seasonal population and and there's one motel on Vinyl Haven. It is not a, a touristy kind of island. Day trippers, people that come over on the ferry in the morning and go back on the ferry in the afternoon are, are common to be seen walking around but there, it's not. There's not 25 hotels. You know, there's a few bed and breakfasts. The majority of the of the people that are there are either year-round islanders or they're seasonal residents. People who have, in many cases, owned property there for decades, who have properties there, and island people act as their caretakers when they're not on the island, but. A delicate balance, I've always said, between the seasonal population and the year-round. The one, the seasonal population that was always successful were people that came there, enjoyed being there, but didn't try to change it into something else or or operate in ways that you know were counter to. Um, an island that really was a fishing community at heart, and that's that's but, an interesting point. Uh, you would, you know, if you didn't live there or experience what you've experienced, one might think that those people that come in that owned own properties, maybe expensive properties, wealthy people would 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 have more of a say or have more influence in in what goes on. But they're very. In my experience, when I was there, and it was many years ago. 
um, was they were extremely supportive. The island had a full-service medical center with a doctor. It had an ambulance service. It had um, the electric co-op, which um, the power for the island was for, at the time, for underwater cables from the mainland to North Haven and then across to Vinyl Haven. The the seasonal population were extremely generous to funding um, the helping with the island community medical center, um, you know, making sure there were sufficient funds for that. They were very influential. It Vinyl Heaven has has an elder care facility on it. Again, huge fundraising raising efforts, much of which comes from seasonal rep and uh, a K to 12 school system with a, an amazing school and, and a lot of artistic and music and STEM kind of class opportunities. Again, because it's a, it's a community that gets very little state aid because of the valuation of the community. Mm-hmm. Um, gets a lot of of financial donations from the seasonal. Mm-hmm. I mean, the seasonal is it, at the time I was there and I can't speak to now, but when I was there it really it was about being part of and not being not taking over. It was a respectful coexistence, shall I say, in in terms of the not that there weren't times when you know, property people who hadn't been there a long time, or people who, who, the ferry. You know, the whole who gets on the ferry first and how you get off the island is one of the most controversial things that we dealt with because that was the hardest thing to happen. And in the summer, when you had lots and lots of people that wanted to travel, it made getting a space on a boat to take your car to be an extremely difficult and complicated. That's an interesting. Process. And as you're, but the, as you're talking, the best thing I, go ahead. I'm sorry. I, I'm sorry. The best thing about Vinyl Haven for me professionally was there's not, there's nothing on Vinyl Haven that you can do with a cookie cutter. Nothing. There's everything there. You have to think of some alternate way to get it done. There's, just putting up winter salt and sand. How hard is that, right? Call a contractor, they show up. Well, not if you're not if you're um, 12 miles offshore. Right. You know, the amount that you can put up is, and the organization to get it back and forth, or paving. You know, how do you get hot mix 12 miles across the water and still have it be in a situation where it can go down? Well, at the time, we had a we set up a plant, but when we capped and closed the landfill, that that was like planning Patton's March to the Sea. You know, having a major contractor and all of their equipment and environmental testing, and not having some of the material barged over, but not screwing up the fishing, um, the lobster gear as it came through, was a huge and. We didn't have any, that's a perfect example. We didn't have any of the things for traditional landfill capping. So we came up with the idea of using crushed 
granite as a final cover. It had never been done anywhere. And I can tell you that it took some convincing of environmental agencies and a lot of testing to prove that it could work, but it won national awards for the design. But my lesson from finally is to never just assume you know the answer. You have to, I hate the term think outside the box, but you, you shouldn't approach anything thinking you already know the answer because if you think about it, there might be a better way to do it. And on Vinyl Haven, you had to because there were, you couldn't do it any normal way for anything. Well, as you, as you, when I started to to say, you segued right into what I was going to actually say was the, the preparation and of all these different jobs. And, and as you talk about Vinyl Haven, the, the competencies and, and the preparation that these experiences uh, gave you, uh, continued to build, it seems like, on themselves as you progress to to each job. And the next job, uh, a bigger bigger area. Tell us about how you, you moved from Vinyl Haven to Hamden. Um, well, Hamden, I, the difficulty for me in being on the island, because I could have stayed there forever, was that my family was on the mainland. And, and as some family was aging, it gets really difficult to live with one foot on the mainland and one foot on the island. It, it, it was impossible. So as I, as they said, I came ashore mm-hmm. uh, back to America <laughs> and, and Hamden was advertising for a manager and Hamden had had a long-term manager. Hamden Hamden had one big issue, had other issues, but I read, in applying for it, I read minutes of council meetings to sort of see what was up in the community. And every single council meeting for several years, as far as back as I went, had the Pine Tree Landfill on that, on an agenda. At the time I was applying, the town had just lost a lawsuit in, in regard to trying to not have an expansion of that. That's the so, big. That's the big mountain now, right? That's, that's the big 95. mountain. That off ninety five. Well, in two thousand, when I was applying, it was not as big a mountain, but it wasn't capped, covered in green. It was open. There were no odor controls mechanisms on the site at all. Um, it had waste coming from everywhere and. And the town and the owners of the facility didn't talk. They they fought. And so when I applied, I got an interview and they talked about two things that they were really looking for someone to do. One was to fix the landfill. It's privately owned. Fix that situation. And the second was to make the the indoor pool, the Laura Hoyt pool that's in Hampton, pay for itself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I told them up front that I might be able to wrestle the landfill situation to the ground, but there was no way unless they were going to build something onto that the, the pool that could supplement income that you can make a recreational pool. It was not a competition pool pay for itself. We we went from about 5% revenues covering 
to a little over 50% in the time I was there, but we we couldn't get any higher because if rates went up anymore, there were other pools in the region people mm-hmm. would have been using. So those are the two things. But the, the landfill was, um, I would hazard a guess that for the probably the first four years that I was there, it took 30% of my time. I, we went through a permitting, it got permitted. We negotiated a, a tremendous host community benefit package that benefited the community, but also benefited abutters to the landfill um, that paid their property taxes, did, you know, for the years that it was open. Um, but I learned every single thing I could about the operation of that landfill. We, we got odor control technology on it. We, I went to sniffer school to have my note, to learn how to identify intensity of odors so that if people called and complained, we could respond, have staff on site to respond. It just, and the reason I did that is when I went there, people didn't know hardly anything about that landfill and how it operated or who was in charge or whatever. We, one of the things we got through permitting was a seat at the table with DEP um, in in review of things. And so I made it my mission to learn every, when people came in and asked what something was or where it was or, you know, what this, that I, I took pictures of every single thing there. I had this whole, these whole storyboard things that people, so that people in the community would have confidence that the people that were supposed to be looking out for their interests in terms of the operation of this were doing that. And I would like to think that was successful. I, we, 10 years after I got there, the, the, um, we had negotiated the closure of that facility and it was capped and closed in 2010. And that had never been done in Maine you know, the whole close a commercial landfill and how does that work? And, and we worked that all out at the local level and then um, turned to DEP to turn it into a consent degree, degree that decree that got it actually closed. Um, is that when, when you do that, is that um, when, when you see the vent pipes coming out of that, is that all part of the close capping? That's closing? all part of it because the, the that system once a, that landfill when it was in operation initially the the first thing they did was I said it looked like a birthday cake they put passive flares on it that that sort of like a bic lighter every you know so many seconds it would it would light to burn off methane coming out of the landfill and. That was an attempt, the original attempt, to help control odors because the the rotten egg method, methane kind of smell is what was making people in the interstate and neighbors and others crazy, and and rightfully so. It was awful. But there was other technology. It's called active gas extraction in which they installed lines in the waste and then covered it, and those were piped to 
one big flare, which was much more efficient and kept all this stuff from escaping. And then finally was changed to uh, a methane extraction where that was creating electricity. It it went from the flare to the... Um, and we were collecting, extracting the methane and it was being used to create electricity for the grid. That was the ultimate answer, but the active gas extraction was huge, huge in helping with the methane and then alternative cover systems, a smaller open working face, all sorts of things that they did um, in order to stay in compliance with the odor monitoring regulations that were were in place at the time. Mm-hmm. It was it was a great um, it was a it was a transition for the commute from the community and, and I'm sure there are many people there who today who have no memory of, of how long that war was. And I guess my goal in that one in in helping people have confidence was to allow the council and the town to move on into uh, into doing other things. They were um, the town didn't have a grocery store. We didn't, you know, we we needed the an, an industrial park had been approved before it got there, but it hadn't been built. And there were a whole lot of things that needed to happen, but the town was consumed with this topic. You know, local government was consumed with this topic, and and when that happens, you're paralyzed. Other things don't happen. So once we kind of got a couple of years into it, things moving in a different direction, then the it, it came off the agenda as a topic. And then you were able and to on move the agenda on went. You know, we got a grocery store, and and we um, did uh, uh, had a the first TIFF that the town did that had Pepsi there, and Bangor Hydro and ended up transferring a lot of their assets into our region. The business part got, you know, the the community really, we the school, the the local business, and the town worked hard together to get the campus style um, high school for RSU 22 located in the center of Hamden instead of one of the usually, you know, put it out back, you're going to bus kids, blah, blah, blah. Anyways, it's right in the middle of the community. That was, it was just a very collaborative um, effort. And Hamden is a, is an awesome community. It has, a whole lot of very committed, uh, community-minded residents, um, and it uh, once that it, it just stopped being one topic, then I think we accomplished a lot of really good things. Yeah, and you were you years, were there, uh, yeah, you were there fifteen years, and um, we're going to one of the things you just mentioned uh, I want to talk about core competencies to be a, a town manager and I wrote down odor control. That's a new one that I hadn't thought of. <laughs> go to odor control sniffing class or whatever you, you call that. But 
<laughs> it's a real thing. It's called otoscience monitoring, and there are companies that um, that where you learn this n-butanol scale, which mm-hmm. is uh, uh, each level. There's eight levels. Is you know a factor more intense, and if anything's more than a an intensity level of a three, then for 15 minutes, then that's considered a nuisance odor. But but what people don't under don't when I said you know it's not what it smells like, it's how intense the odor is. Well, that's what I said there are there are odor complaints in Hershey, Pennsylvania, from because of the intensity of the smell of chocolate, which might sound wonderful, but after 15 or 20 minutes at at a very high intensity level, this is the same kind of negative impact on your body as if you were smelling something that where the odor wasn't something you'd normally like. Right. So interesting. Uh, interesting. Oh yeah. So I had to. I was so scared. I we had to go to odor science monitoring school, and and I was terrified that my nose wouldn't be wouldn't pass the test in order to take the class. I mean, you had to take it. A test to see if your nose had a sensitive enough receptors to be able to. Being a little competitive here, I was, but I passed and I uh, was recertified several times. Interesting. While I was in <laughs> well, that that is one I hadn't had on the list, and we're what I'd like to do is we're we're going to talk. So at 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 the end of your your fifteen years there, I think you decided to, you were going to retire and. Or did you you take uh, another position in between Bucksport? I, I don't remember. I thought we kind of no, grabbed I, you I out was, of retirement, but I, well, I in March of um, 2015, it was a time to decide if I wanted another contract with with Hamden. And um, initially, I thought about it, but um, family circumstances were getting difficult. My mom. And my stepmother, my mom and my stepfather were in Belfast and their needs for my time, I have one sister, she's in Texas, were increasing pretty dramatically. Um, My now husband, Dan, had some health issues at the time and was driving 150 miles a day to work and back. And we just said, you know, we need to regroup. We need to do something different. Their lives, and so I notified the council that I wouldn't be seeking another contract. And so, after I did that, I heard from Eaton Peabody, who has a um, an arm of their their services that where they they assist communities with um, interim managers for communities in transition. That's what you call it. But what that really means is communities that have either lost a manager or have had something terrible happen or the wheels are off the bus. Somebody to sort of short-term step in, help out, move on. And and since that was kind of what I thought, well, if I don't do this, you know, 60 hours a week in one place, I could pick and choose if I wanted to do, be in a community for a few months or, you know, not full time during the week to help out, that would be a good retirement plan. And the manager Hamden hired couldn't start by the end of June. So I was still in Hamden in August um, until he could get there. 
and I got a call from Eaton Peabody that they had a community that was in transition. And I said, what's that one? And they said, Bucksport. I said, wow, Bucksport. Bucksport that's just been through two managers in like two and a half years and the mill closed and they lost 40% of their value. And that Bucksport, and they're like, yeah, that Bucksport. <laughs> I said, well, that. But then I thought, I, I didn't have a dog in any of those fights. But but I do have a skill set that can put the wheels on the bus. I am not a visionary. I tell that to every council or board I've ever worked for. I, I am not a visionary. I am not the one who's going to come up with the idea of some wild thing. However, I am the one who can put the wheels on the bus, keep the wheels on the bus, make sure that you have enough money for the bus to run, and make work whatever policies you set. I, as long as there's a clear definition between our roles, I will not set policy, but I will carry it out. So if people hate your policy, they're going to hate me because I'm going to be the one that makes it work. And and so I came to Bucksport and, you know, there was an immediate resignation of one of the counselors and um, there was a lot of energy in the community for to help to do something. Bucksport is a really incredible community in the, in the sense of community that it has and in the number of organizations that popped up and everybody wanted to help, but there was some stepping on each other's toes. You know, everyone wants to help, but where are we going was the question. If we're not a town with a mill, what are we? And so just in my when I stepped in here, it was, it was, you know, as I said, getting the audits got up, getting the budget done, you know, sort of looking at the future. And, and, and that was, the contract was going to be 10 months, get through a budget season. I came in August and six months into it, the council talked about hiring and, I applied and they hired me. Um, and I i don't know when I forgot that I was going to do this interim in a bunch of places, but I'm in my eighth year here. And I entirely, because um, my husband and I bought a house here, it, whether I'm in the manager here or not, this is where I want to live um, because of the kind of community that Bucksport is. And what's, that. what surprised you about, um, you know, it, it would be, I think, logical to think that after this closure, even though I think the, there was some anticipation that it was going to happen at some point in time, but when it did, there was still the trauma and everything that was associated with that. Was, was there anything that surprised you about how resilient the community was? You did mention, you mentioned a, a lot of great groups that we still have, a lot of uh, really focused people, but what surprised you the most at that time? Well, I think that what surprised me the most was Bucksport has never been a one-trick pony. I think that there were many things that were already here that were in the shadow of the mill, which was the 900-pound elephant at the end of 
Main Street. And I don't mean that in a negative way. It, it just was, there were a whole lot of other, there was a very strong arts community. There's a whole lot of other small business entrepreneurs here already. And, but you didn't hear about them because it was sort of overshadowed by the mill and what that went with. But Bucksport was so smart. It, the mill years built the foundation for Bucksport to be able to move forward. The, if you look at communities that have had mills, that have had mills close, They've, they've had tremendous staff reductions. They've had property sales, property values drop to nothing. They've had, you know, public facilities that are, were in terrible shape. But Bucksport didn't do that. Bucksport invested heavily in its infrastructure during the mill years. It built this amazing mile-long waterfront walkway that we have. It built miles and miles of hiking trails. It has some of the best recreational and sports fields around in its facilities. It it just invested heavily in itself. So when the mill closed, the town wasn't left saying, oh, geez, if we improve the recreation or, oh, geez, then people might be drawn here. We already had those things. We just needed to make sure we could maintain and improve them. But without the great big pocketbook that the town had for many years. And then, as everybody knows, the town had an $8 million fund balance that councils had been setting aside for 20 years, along with um, former manager Roger Raymond, for the eventuality that the mill might close to to sort of hold, be able to hold a turn at, in nautical terms to let the dust settle and see where to go without having to decimate services to the, to a community. When it came here, there was a committee that was looking at what do we do? And it had some councils on it and had some residents and they came up with a whole lot of ideas about what the town ought to do to uh, adjust to its new circumstances. And some of them were pretty severe, you know, eliminating programs, doing those kind of things. And before they published it, they came to see me and asked me to look it over, which I did. And my suggestions were that that instead of jumping off a cliff with these, that, that if we made some course corrections, if we did business a bit differently, people, it would be invisible to the general public, but it would reduce cost, not just once, but in the long term, and that really, if you thought about it, people here had lost enough. They lost jobs. They lost, you know, people who moved away. They lost a, a part of their identity um, for many of them who were, you know, whose families were generational in the mill. And so taking away recreation or, uh, or reducing ambulance service or doing things that went to the heart of having their kids have opportunities here or that just wasn't the right thing. And and the council agreed with that, that they really wanted this community to um, step into its next iteration, respecting the foundation it was built on, which were the mill years, but 
being open to looking at, okay, what's next? And we went through six major planning efforts, looking at everything from heart and soul, which was the ground up grassroots, you know, what do people love about this community and what do they want to keep to the adapt plan, which looked at the entire Main Street area, um, a recreational plan. We did the we redid the comp plan, and, but all of that has been. We're funders love us. Grant people love us because in these grants they want to know what what's the public think about this or what have you done it. We we can. Our plans are not sitting on the shelf. There's some place in a list of things that we have to do. And much of I that, realize I'm talking a long no, that's, time. No, but- that's okay. But much, much of that is is um, is due to your leadership and, and the skill set that you, you brought when you came to Bucksport and that you've used to cultivate and facilitate and uh, bring all these these things together. And, and that's kind of what I wanted to transition to in the few minutes that we have left is, you know, we're talking about, uh, in, in my podcast, I, I interview a lot of leaders, and you're certainly one of the top uh, of, that I've that I've interviewed. And when we talk about core competencies, top manager job is a tough job. It is. It is. I'm sure it's, maybe I'm, maybe this is the wrong perception, but I think at times it's got to be thankless. Any any public job, sometimes you probably feel like you're getting beat upon constantly. But what what are the core competencies as a leader that you think are necessary if somebody wants to aspire to get into this this profession? What are the maybe four or five core competencies that competencies that you think are most important? Um, this is gonna my sense. You need to love this work. You can hate it some days, but you need to, you need to have a passion for it, for making things better. I am not Mother Teresa, but if I do my job well, mill rates are manageable. Serve, the, the people that serve the community in whatever capacity, if you to ask anyone that works for Manbox for what their, what's their first responsibility, they would tell you it's to help people. And that it's through whatever lens of the job they do. So a passion for for good government, transparent, open, and understanding that if you do your job well, you can get there. And, and yes, there are challenges. Yes, there are people that hate government. Yes, there's a hundred things. But that's not personal. That's That's work. It's not who I am, it's what I do, but the the whole, I, I would say a passion for it. I would say patience, patience. Um, you, and um, the ability to always stay on the high road, which might sound silly, but in any, in any situation, there are times when you just want to get down and swing. <laughs> it feels like an attack, but but you can't. You you really need to stay on the high road, and because as I always say that once you get down in the mud, even if you're right, you're still dirty. You know, so take a deep breath, stay stay on the high road. 
persistence, um, willingness to listen to everyone, wanting everyone in the room, you know, not, not just listening to the choir, actively seeking out those who don't agree with anything you're doing um, or that the town is doing to try and find common ground. I, th- I think it's a lot of, you have to, you have to basically like and believe in the goodness of people, even when there are examples that some of them are not so much. But and I would say, again, watching you over the years, and, and as I mentioned at the beginning, having been a council member, you you exhibit those characteristics to a T. I can see that in everything you do. Uh, it You know, it, the interesting thing is, obviously, there are technical skills that, you know, one wants to learn you learn either through your previous positions or through your your uh, different uh, conferences and all of those sorts of things what's interesting to me is in it and it makes sense the things you listed are almost uh, considered soft skills right they're they're those those emotional intelligence related competencies you is that the the organizational structure is such that the council has one or the board of select basically has one employee and that's the manager and everyone else works for the manager. And so you can't get, and I, I don't do the, all the work, but I have to, I have to provide leadership that for all the people who work for the town that make them believe, understand the mission, believe in the mission, want to get on the bus, and will do whatever it takes right along with me to move the bus forward. And so that sounds like a soft skill, but it really is composed of being able to put together competent budgets, being able to keep Bucksport on the front page in a positive way through media relations and through the efforts of, you know, all of my people who have won countless awards, you know, the, the, the soft skills are just, uh, are just the face of what the, the underneath, if you pull back that curtain, it's strong budgets, it's good reserving, it's, it's, competency at all levels of your organizations. It's expecting the best and it's supporting the people that work for you so that they're, they feel safe in going out to try and do new things and all those kind of things. So it, it sounds like social, but if you've got the social skills and you don't have the other stuff, you're dead. Exactly. There's nothing to, to build on. But if you, I mean, the, the success in Bucksport is entirely attributed to the people who live here who were in a state of, okay, this is awful, this has happened, we need to get up and move on, and the community leaders who for decades had been sort of saying things that, no, what? who would dare say in a mill town 20 years ago, well, we need to plan for when the mill closes? You know, who would say that? Bucksport said that, and and as a result, has a completely different current um, scenario than most other former mill communities that 
that didn't. Now, we have location on our side, too, but that's not everything. Right. Yeah, and when you, when you talk about um, the hard skills, and, and I, just a couple more questions, one of the things I do want to share with everybody is is your resume, as is, is we talked through earlier, is, was building, partly building those, your education, your resume, and your previous jobs, building some of those hard skills. But you also have been on a, a number, a, a large number of uh, committees and boards and uh, all of those things, which uh, certainly reflects well on you. You've received, you know, the, the Maine Town and City Managers Association Leadership Award, uh, the Engineering Excellence Award from the State of Maine, uh, the Downtown Achievement Award, the William F. King Downtown Achievement Award, a whole host of things. So, you you know, going into the core competencies, you built a lot of that foundation through all these uh, experiences, all the committees, conferences, and all those things as well, which is an important part of the job, I think. It it provides, I'm in my 13th year on the Board of Environmental Protection, and I'm I'm the chair again. I was the chair from 2008 to 11, and when I was on from 7 to 15, and I came back on in 17, and I'm in, I'm still there, and I just was appointed the chair again. That kind of activity is, for me at this point in my career, kind of giving back. Maine has been good to me, uh, you know, but that board is an active board, requires a lot of things. But I also served on the executive committee of Maine Municipal and was its president in 2003 and have had a really fortunate, career with the opportunities that I've had. I say that my husband said, <laughs> opportunities don't make themselves, Susan, which may or may not be true, but I I guess maybe I've taken advantage of the opportunities that <laughs> That's exactly afforded what, to me. Exactly the discussion I had with my son-in-law on uh, Sunday, we were talking about luck versus uh, opportunity. And I said, uh, I think people talk about, I was lucky here, I was lucky there, but it, in many cases, in most cases, it's about uh, being able to take advantage and being willing to take advantage of opportunities when they present themselves. So uh, you've, you clearly have done, have done that. Uh, and also uh, for any young person, any young leader, uh, your resume with, with all the different committees and activities you've been involved with is, is a, is uh, reflects the fact that you need to be uh, networking as a as a leader and uh, something younger people. I, I have at this stage also had the opportunity for some young managers who are just starting who call and ask for help, and and that's very gratifying. That you know if they're hitting a difficult something and just want to bounce off ideas, and I. I I've, I, I have significant opportunities to do that and, and have for a number of years now. So that feels like sort of helping to grow the next generation um, in, in a positive way. And that's, that's excellent. And that's what, that's what, you know, I hope to highlight with these types of podcasts is uh, give somebody that may listen an opportunity to understand what this career is all about and what, a successful, highly successful leader uh, has done uh, to 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 make a successful career in the town manager 
business. Well, let me if I wrap up with just a quick question. I, this is going to be easy for you, Sue. It's it's if you could give me one or two highlights. What would be the highlights of your career? <laughs> I told you it was going to be easier. Oh, Can you sum up uh, a highlight? Maybe your biggest highlight. Um. I, Oh, every time I reach one, the next one comes along. I, um, I think that one of the highlights in my career was um, the whole landfill capping closure process in Hamden. That was, mm-hmm. I mean, it wasn't an instant, but it was it was a journey. But we made it to the destination, and and that was a huge thing. And the second thing is is was Bucksport during COVID. And when we, when the, everything closed and people were sent home and it was March 18th, I think was the day, if I remember correctly. And you weren't supposed to go out unless you were an essential work. All of these things were happening. And, and I came up with this idea that we needed to do something because the state and the federal government were talking about, you know, they were going to do this and they're going to, but nobody was doing anything. And people, people weren't working. People who lived paycheck to paycheck were, and businesses couldn't open or couldn't function. And we have hundred and I can't remember how many, seventy or eighty small businesses and and Pakistan that in some way rely on. And so it came with this idea that we would do grants to uh, businesses and um, Hennaford and, or Tozier, uh $150, well, it was 100 initially, uh, gift cards just in, to help stem the tide until, mm-hmm. and to give, you know, to do home delivered meals to our seniors. Forget the $6 fee. We would just do it three days a week and, and volunteers. In addition, because there would be a bigger number, would be the police department and highway and myself and my husband to deliver meals three days a week and donate more money to the food pantry and more money to our homeless shelter. Because all of these entities were getting hit immediately without a way to respond. And so that happened on March 18th. The first monies, the first everything went out in Bucksport on April 2nd. Nobody responded that fast. Nobody. And all during the pandemic, the first several months when we couldn't be interfacing with the public, this office was open every single day that it was supposed to be open and somebody was answering the phone and it rang off the hook. People were afraid. People didn't know what to do. People needed answers. People, But there was reassurance for them. And the fact that that we're here, we, we'll figure out a way to get home delivered food. We'll figure out a way to get people to medical appointments, and we did all of those things. So that those two things are it, the pandemic had never, and our our frontline people were just incredible. We had converted to a public safety model in the prior November, and our service delivery was seamless. Through that entire. Oh, that that's beginning. a that's a great 
great example, uh, and and truly, it was the test of of many leaders, many organizations during that time. And you certainly passed the test, and as you said, uh, did some great things for Bucksport during that time. Well, Sue, I, I think we could I I could use another hour just to go through all the all the other great things that Bucksport's doing, but maybe it maybe another podcast in the future. This has been okay, well. Now, Bucksport is Bucksport is. People just need to come see what Bucksport is. We have so many things going on. That's right. That's right. So we'll invite we'll invite them down and and seriously, uh, maybe we can we can talk again. Maybe bring Rich in, Rich Roteller. Absolutely, uh, Rich the- would be. You know, I joke that Rich used to be six feet tall before we ran his legs off <laughs> filling up Main Street and and the business park and all those kind of things. But he's been a dynamo. He's our and, economic development director in, in Bucksport. And uh, I think that would really actually be a, a great, uh, great talk. Well, again, thank you. We've, we've had the pleasure here. Or I've had the pleasure and and I'll be sharing this with the listeners of, of speaking with Sue Lassard, uh, one of our most talented, respected leaders in, in government as a, in town management uh, throughout the state, and and we're so happy to have her here in Bucksport. Hopefully for uh, a number more years. And uh, Sue, thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. Thank you very much for inviting me. Thank you for listening, and I hope you'll join me again and for another Mainly Matters podcast in the near future. <laughs>